Chapter One of In His Steps. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Megan Kongle. In His Steps by Charles Monroe Sheldon. Chapter One. For hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It was Friday morning, and the Reverend Henry Maxwell was trying to finish his Sunday morning sermon. He had been interrupted several times and was growing nervous as the morning wore away, and the sermon grew very slowly toward a satisfactory finish. Mary, he called to his wife as he went upstairs after the last interruption. If anyone comes after this, I wish you would say I am very busy, and cannot come down unless it is something very important. Yes, Henry, but I am going over to visit the kindergarten, and you will have the house all to yourself. The minister went up into his study and shut the door. In a few minutes he heard his wife go out, and then everything was quiet. He settled himself at his desk with a sigh of relief and began to write. His text was from First Peter 2.21. For hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps. He had emphasized in the first part of the sermon the atonement as a personal sacrifice, calling attention to the fact of Jesus' suffering in various ways, in his life as well as in his death. He had then gone on to emphasize the atonement from the side of example, giving illustrations from the life and teachings of Jesus to show how faith in the Christ helped to save men because of the pattern or character he displayed for their imitation. He was now on the third and last point, the necessity of following Jesus in his sacrifice and example. He had put down three steps, what are they, and was about to enumerate them in logical order when the bell rang sharply. It was one of those clockwork bells, and always went off as a clock might go if it tried to strike twelve all at once. Henry Maxwell sat at his desk and frowned a little. He made no movement to answer the bell. Very soon it rang again. Then he rose and walked over to one of his windows which commanded the view of the front door. A man was standing on the steps. He was a young man, very shabbily dressed. "'Looks like a tramp,' said the minister. "'I suppose I'll have to go down and—' He did not finish his sentence, but he went downstairs and opened the front door. There was a moment's pause as the two men stood facing each other. Then the shabby-looking young man said, "'I'm out of a job, sir, and thought maybe you might put me in the way of getting something.' "'I don't know of anything. Jobs are scarce,' replied the minister, beginning to shut the door slowly. "'I didn't know, but you might perhaps be able to give me a line to the city railway, or the superintendent of the shops, or something,' continued the young man, shifting his faded hat from one hand to the other nervously. "'It would be of no use. You will have to excuse me. I am very busy this morning. I hope you will find something. Sorry I can't give you something to do here. But I keep only a horse and a cow and do the work myself.' The Reverend Henry Maxwell closed the door and heard the man walk down the steps. As he went up into his study he saw from his hall window that the man was going slowly down the street, still holding his hat between his hands. There was something in the figure so dejected, homeless and forsaken, that the minister hesitated a moment as he stood looking at it. Then he turned to his desk, and with a sigh began the writing where he had left off. He had no more interruptions and when his wife came in two hours later the sermon was finished, the loose leaves gathered up and neatly tied together, and laid on his Bible all ready for the Sunday morning service. "'A queer thing happened at the kindergarten this morning, Henry,' said his wife while they were eating dinner. 
You know I went over with Mrs. Brown to visit the school, and just after the games, while the children were at the tables, the door opened and a young man came in holding a dirty hat in both hands. He sat down near the door and never said a word, only looked at the children. He was evidently a tramp, and Miss Wren and her assistant, Miss Kyle, were a little frightened at first, but he sat there very quietly, and after a few minutes he went out. Perhaps he was tired and wanted to rest somewhere. The same man called here, I think. Did you say he looked like a tramp? Yes, very dusty, shabby, and generally tramp-like. Not more than thirty or thirty-three years old, I should say. The same man, said the Reverend Henry Maxwell thoughtfully. Did you finish your sermon, Henry? His wife asked after a pause. Yes, all done. It has been a very busy week with me. The two sermons have cost me a good deal of labor. They will be appreciated by a large audience Sunday, I hope, replied his wife, smiling. What are you going to preach about in the morning? Following Christ, I take up the atonement under the head of sacrifice and example, and then show the steps needed to follow his sacrifice and example. I am sure it is a good sermon. I hope it won't rain Sunday. We have had so many stormy Sundays lately. Yes, the audiences have been quite small for some time. People will not come out to church in a storm. The Reverend Henry Maxwell sighed as he said it. He was thinking of the careful, laborious effort he had made in preparing sermons for large audiences that failed to appear. But Sunday morning dawned on the town of Raymond one of the perfect days that sometimes come after long periods of wind and mud and rain. The air was clear and bracing, the sky was free from all threatening signs, and every one in Mr. Maxwell's parish prepared to go to church. When the service opened at eleven o'clock, the large building was filled with an audience of the best-dressed, most comfortable-looking people of Raymond. The First Church of Raymond believed in having the best music that money could buy, and its quartet choir this morning was a source of great pleasure to the congregation. The anthem was inspiring. All the music was in keeping with the subject of the sermon, and the anthem was an elaborate adaptation to the most modern music of the hymn. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Just before the sermon, the soprano sang a solo, the well-known hymn. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him, all the way. Rachel Winslow looked very beautiful that morning as she stood up behind the screen of carved oak, which was significantly marked with the emblems of the cross and the crown. Her voice was even more beautiful than her face, and that meant a great deal. There was a general rustle of expectation over the audience as she rose. Mr. Maxwell settled himself contentedly behind the pulpit. Rachel Winslow's singing always helped him. He generally arranged for a song before the sermon. It made possible a certain inspiration of feeling that made his delivery more impressive. People said to themselves that they had never heard such singing even in the first church. It is certain that if it had not been a church service, her solo would have been vigorously applauded. It even seemed to the minister when she sat down that something like an attempted clapping of hands or a striking of the feet on the floor swept through the church. He was startled by it. As he rose, however, and laid his sermon on the Bible, he said to himself he had been deceived. Of course it could not occur. In a few moments he was absorbed in his sermon and everything else was forgotten in the pleasure of his delivery. No one had ever accused Henry Maxwell of being a dull preacher. On the contrary, he had often been charged with being sensational, not in what he had said so much, as in his way of saying it. 
but the first church people liked that. It gave their preacher and their parish a pleasant distinction that was agreeable. It was also true that the pastor of the first church loved to preach. He seldom exchanged. He was eager to be in his own pulpit when Sunday came. There was an exhilarating half-hour for him as he faced a church full of people, and know that he had a hearing. He was particularly sensitive to variations in the audience. He never preached well before a small audience. The weather also affected him decidedly. He was at his best before just such an audience as faced him now, on just such a morning. He felt a glow of satisfaction as he went on. The church was the first in the city. It had the best choir. It had a membership composed of the leading people, representatives of the wealth, society, and intelligence of Raymond. He was going abroad on a three months' vacation in the summer, and the circumstances of his pastorate, his influence and his position as pastor of the first church in the city. It is not certain that the Reverend Henry Maxwell knew just how he could carry on that thought in connection with his sermon. But as he drew near the end of it, he knew that he had, at some point in his delivery, had all those feelings. They had entered into the very substance of his thought. It might have been all in a few seconds of time, but he had been conscious of defining his position and his emotions as well as if he had held a soliloquy, and his delivery partook of the thrill of deep personal satisfaction. The sermon was interesting. It was full of striking sentences. They would have commanded attention printed. Spoken with a passion of a dramatic utterance that had the good taste never to offend with a suspicion of ranting or declamation, they were very effective. If the Reverend Henry Maxwell that morning felt satisfied with the conditions of his pastorate, the First Church also had a similar feeling as if it congratulated itself on the presence in the pulpit of this scholarly, refined, somewhat striking face and figure, preaching with such animation and freedom from all vulgar, noisy, or disagreeable mannerism. Suddenly, into the midst of this perfect accord and concord between preacher and audience, there came a very remarkable interruption. It would be difficult to indicate the extent of the shock which this interruption measured. It was so unexpected, so entirely contrary to any thought of any person present, that it offered no room for argument or, for the time being, of resistance. The sermon had come to a close. Mr. Maxwell had just turned the half of the big Bible over upon his manuscript, and was about to sit down as the quartet prepared to rise to sing the closing selection. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers. When the entire congregation was startled by the sound of a man's voice. It came from the rear of the church, from one of the seats under the gallery. The next moment the figure of a man came out of the shadow there, and walked down the middle aisle. Before the startled congregation fairly realized what was going on, the man had reached the open space in front of the pulpit, and had turned about facing the people. "'I've been wondering since I came in here.' They were the words he used under the gallery, and he repeated them. "'If it would be just the thing to say a word at the close of the service. I'm not drunk and I'm not crazy, and I am perfectly harmless. But if I die, as there is every likelihood I shall in a few days, I want the satisfaction of thinking that I said my say in a place like this, before this sort of a crowd.' Henry Maxwell had not taken his seat, and he now remained standing, leaning on his pulpit, looking down at the stranger. It was the man who had come to his house the Friday before, the same dusty, worn, shabby-looking young man. He held his faded hat in his two hands. It seemed to be a favorite gesture. 
He had not been shaved, and his hair was rough and tangled. It is doubtful if anyone like this had ever confronted the first church within the sanctuary. It was tolerably familiar with the sort of humanity out on the street, around the railroad shops, wandering up and down the avenue, but it had never dreamed of such an incident as this so near. There was nothing offensive in the man's manner or tone. He was not excited, and he spoke in a low but distinct voice. Mr. Maxwell was conscious, even as he stood there, smitten into dumb astonishment at the event, that somehow the man's action reminded him of a person he had once seen walking and talking in his sleep. No one in the house made any motion to stop the stranger, or in any way interrupt him. Perhaps the first shock of his sudden appearance deepened into a genuine perplexity concerning what was best to do. However that may be, he went on as if he had no thought of interruption, and no thought of the unusual element which he had introduced into the decorum of the first church service. And all the while he was speaking, the minister leaned over the pulpit, his face growing more white and sad every moment. And the people sat smitten into breathless silence. One other face, that of Rachel Winslow from the choir, stared white and intent down at the shabby figure with the faded hat. Her face was striking at any time. Under the pressure of the present unheard-of incident, it was as personally distinct as if it had been framed in fire. "'I'm not an ordinary tramp, though I don't know of any teaching of Jesus that makes one kind of a tramp less worth saving than another. Do you?' He put the question as naturally as if the whole congregation had been a small Bible class. He paused just a moment and coughed painfully. Then he went on. "'I lost my job ten months ago. I am a printer by trade.' The new linotype machines are beautiful specimens of invention, but I know six men who have killed themselves inside of the year, just on account of those machines. Of course, I don't blame the newspapers for getting the machines. Meanwhile, what can a man do? I know I never learned but the one trade, and that's all I can do. I've tramped all over the country trying to find something. There are a good many others like me. I'm not complaining, am I? Just stating facts. But... I was wondering, as I sat there under the gallery, if what you call following Jesus is the same thing as what he taught. What did he mean when he said, follow me? The minister said, here he turned about and looked up at the pulpit, that it is necessary for the disciple of Jesus to follow in his steps, and he said the steps are obedience, faith, love, and imitation. But I did not hear him tell you just what he meant that to mean, especially the last step, what do you Christians mean by following the steps of Jesus? I've tramped through this city for three days trying to find a job, and in all that time I've not had a word of sympathy or comfort, except for your minister here, who said he was sorry for me and hoped I would find a job somewhere. I suppose it is because you get so imposed on by the professional tramp that you have lost your interest in any other sort. I'm not blaming anybody, am I? Just stating facts. Of course, I understand you can't all go out of your way to hunt up jobs for other people like me. I'm not asking you to. But what I feel puzzled about is, what is meant by following Jesus? What do you mean when you sing, I'll go with him, with him, all the way? Do you mean that you are suffering and denying yourselves and trying to save lost, suffering humanity, just as I understand Jesus did? What do you mean by it? I see the ragged edge of things a good deal. I understand there are more than five hundred men in this city in my case. Most of them have families. My wife died four months ago. I'm glad she is out of trouble. My little girl is staying with the printer's family until I find a job. Somehow I get puzzled when I see so many Christians living in luxury and singing, 
Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. And remember how my wife died in a tenement in New York City, gasping for air and asking God to take the little girl too. Of course, I don't expect you people can prevent everyone from dying of starvation, lack of proper nourishment and tenement air. But what does following Jesus mean? I understand that Christian people own a good many of the tenements. A member of a church was the owner of the one where my wife died, and I have wondered if following Jesus all the way was true in his case. I heard some people singing at a church meeting the other night, All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my thoughts and all my doings, all my days and all my hours. And I kept wondering as I sat on the steps outside just what they meant by it. It seems to me there's an awful lot of trouble in the world that somehow wouldn't exist if all the people who sing such songs went and lived them out. I suppose I don't understand. But what would Jesus do? Is that what you meant by following his steps? It seems to me sometimes as if the people in the big churches had good clothes and nice houses to live in, and money to spend for luxuries, and could go away on summer vacations and all that, while the people outside the churches, thousands of them, I mean, die in tenements and walk the streets for jobs, and never have a piano or picture in the house, and grow up in misery and drunkenness and sin. The man suddenly gave a queer lurch over in the direction of the communion table, and laid one grimy hand on it. His hat fell upon the carpet at his feet. A stir went through the congregation. Dr. West half rose from his pew, but as yet the silence was unbroken by any voice or movement worth mentioning in the audience. The man passed his other hand across his eyes, and then, without any warning, fell heavily forward on his face, full length up the aisle. Henry Maxwell spoke. We will consider the service closed. End of chapter 1